Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. The United States marked yesterday the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. On that day in 2020, a violent mob reached the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to prevent certification of the vote that made Joe Biden president. Benny Thompson represents Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District in the U.S. House. He was in the Capitol January 6th. He's also now chair of the select committee tasked with investigating the incident. Representative Thompson speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. One year later, we have to make sure it never happens again. We heard testimony from people who were in the Capitol at the time. But I think it's significant that the president, Biden, took the mantle of leadership and called it like he saw it. Obviously, former President Trump had more to do with people coming to Washington on January 6th, a year ago, than any other person. And the fact that speeches by him and other people uh, riled up a crowd and they came to the Capitol after those speeches and attacked the United States Capitol. So what people saw with their very eyes on that day actually occurred. It was absolutely people who supported Donald Trump. It wasn't any other group of people. It wasn't the FBI. It wasn't the CIA. It was Donald Trump supporters who were mad because they had lost the election. And somehow Donald Trump had convinced them that the election was stolen. And it's so unfortunate uh, because normally in America, we felt a lot of differences at the ballot box. And in this instance, Donald Trump did not accept defeat. And that's just too bad. You were in the Capitol on January 6th a year ago. What are your memories of that day? Well, my memories uh, from that point uh, are twofold. One, uh, I was there to see what the Constitution requires uh, us to do as members of Congress, which is receive the ballots from the states and uh, go through the certification process. And uh, actually, my candidate, Joe Biden, won. I was very happy. Four years before that, my candidate lost. Uh, I didn't like it, but I didn't tear the place up, and nobody else did. So on that day, what uh, I knew uh, a demonstration was going on on another part of town, I did not 
know that those individuals had been sent to come to the Capitol to do what they did, but nonetheless, they came, uh, they broke in, and uh, security guards started closing doors and escorting people out of the area. It was a to- it was a terrible time, and so for me, hearing from friends and loved ones about what they were seeing on TV, which I could not see because I'm inside, led me to believe that uh, the United States Capitol was under attack by people who'd been weaponized by Donald Trump to come and do just what they were doing. And so for the better part of an hour, uh, I was locked into the Capitol, unable to to get out. I heard gunshot where uh, the lady was killed. I heard windows breaking uh, and and tear gas canisters being deployed, all of that. So it was it was a, a trying time. But um, I didn't give up on the faith of our country. I believe our Capitol Police are some of the best people that I've met since I've been in Washington. Uh, They defended us to no end, although they were outnumbered. And it was only until after we were escorted out of the area uh, where we had been uh, on lockdown did I see the, the rioters spread eagle on the floor at gunpoint did I really know how close they actually came to getting inside the building where we were located. So I thank the men and women for for doing what they did. It was a trying time. Some of my colleagues are still having uh, psychological issues behind what occurred a year later. And so it was not a uh, a time that uh, I'm proud of uh, uh, as an American, uh, but I am proud that our men and women defended the Capitol. 145 of them got hurt. Uh, and and so in this great country of ours, uh, we will do better. Uh, as you know, I chair the committee uh, that's looking into what happened. We've interviewed over 300 witnesses. Uh, We've had over 45,000 documents that we're looking at at this point, as well as going all over the country, uh, just trying to make sure that we get all the information available to us to try to figure out uh, definitively why these people came to Washington and did what they did. Uh, It's so unfortunate Uh, uh, because we are a great country, Uh, but to attack your country because your candidate didn't win is not who we are. And God forbid the success of our committee uh, at the end will provide a roadmap for that never to ever happen again. During a moment of silence in recognition of the events of a year ago, my understanding was Liz Cheney was the only Republican House member on the House floor. Can you talk about that? Well, 
you're absolutely correct. Liz Cheney and her father, former Vice President Cheney, sat on the floor. I talked to them uh, after, uh, told him he raised a, a fine daughter. I enjoyed working with her on the committee. And, uh, you know, uh, and she has been a trooper. Uh, she's taken a lot of heat. But she says, you know what happened on January 6th of last year is about saving our democracy. Uh, it's not about party. It's not about anything. And, and so for her to take that risk, I applaud her for it. And for those Republicans who are attacking her, Adam Kingsinger, who are on that committee, shame on them. A final question, two-parter, let's say. Part one, your reflections on the future of American democracy. And part two, what are you and your fellow House members beyond the January 6th Select Committee doing to ensure that American democracy survives? Well, let me tell you, America is still the greatest country on earth. Uh, it's just that every now and then you have to reflect back and look at from whence you've come. Uh, and sometimes we're going to have to uh, fix some things. Uh, if people now think that individual liberty means attacking your government if your candidate loses, if people somehow believe that saying wearing a mask to protect you and the other public from getting infected, if people somehow believe that getting a shot to protect you from infection is somehow taking your liberties away from them, then we have to retool. So that retooling after January 6th means that uh, we have to fix anything that our committee identifies. I'm convinced that we will make recommendations and they will be adopted. But going forward, uh, I don't know any other place I'd want to be uh, than the United States of America. And normally, we settle our differences at the ballot box. We're not a third-world country. It's just that there are some third-world minds out here uh, who want to take us back. But our history uh, dictates uh, that we go forward, not backward. Representative Thompson speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. He represents Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District in the U.S. House. Coming up on Deep South Cities, experiments with cash support for low-income residents. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is MPB 
You're listening to Mississippi Edition. I'm Desiree Frazier. Guaranteed income is coming to the Gulf South with Birmingham, New Orleans, and Shreveport set to launch pilot programs soon. Each city will give a small number of residents hundreds of dollars each month. The programs work differently, but they have in common the same goal, helping people escape poverty. From the Gulf State newsrooms, Aubrey Yuhas and Stephen Basaha have this story. These cities have been planning these pilots for months, and they're finally ready to start handing out money. And up first is New Orleans. Yes. Starting in January, the city plans to launch a program specifically for teenagers and young adults who, for the most part, are neither in school nor working. These young people can be really difficult to reach, especially if they don't speak English. So the city has taken extra steps to make sure they sign up. Hola, ¿estás aquí para ayuda del huracán de Alas o del programa de UBI? That's Lisa Maria Rhodes, a community organizer who's helping with the city's pilot program. She's at New Orleans City Park talking to young people that have already signed up. Many think the program's too good to be true. Up until now, I think they're like... I'm just trusting you and filling out this form, but I've never heard of something like this, and is this a scam? If you've never heard of guaranteed income before, it does kind of sound pretty scammy. Yeah, it does. But across the Gulf South, and the entire country really, dozens of cities receive funding for pilots from a nonprofit called Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. All of the pilot programs have two main goals. Give unrestricted money to the people that need it and study what happens when you do. New Orleans Pilot will run for 10 months, and participants will get $350 each month. 21-year-old Jasmine Gil Rivera says if selected for the pilot, she'd like to save the money for college. But... The rent is going, like, so high. I don't know why, and bills, too, is going so high, and probably that will be go through, like, food, rent, and bills. Each city and pilot is doing the who gets the money and how much a little bit differently. For example, Shreveport's giving out nearly twice as much, $680 per month. Their pilot will go for a full year. It's targeting single parents living near or below the poverty line. While Birmingham's looking to help single moms. That could be a single biological mom. It could be a single grandmother or auntie or, you know, somebody playing the the mother role. Amelia Muller works for the city of Birmingham and helped put together the city's pilot, which is giving out $375 a month. In Birmingham, about 60% of households with kids under 18 are led by single women. And we know that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted single women, has it disproportionately impacted mothers. Birmingham's pilot also stands out because anyone can apply, no matter how much they make. That's to make sure people who need help aren't left out if they make just a few dollars too much, a common problem with welfare. Researchers that have been studying welfare for years, like Mimi Abramovitz, also say today's programs are too restrictive, with lots of paperwork, drug testing, and work requirements. A guaranteed annual income that doesn't do that is great. The more it doesn't do that, the better. Now, guaranteed income skeptics argue giving people money reduces the incentive to work. But research shows that's usually not the case. Another criticism is that's really expensive. Just look at Social Security. It's basically a guaranteed income for older Americans, and it takes up nearly a quarter of the entire federal budget. While the program is pricey, it's also popular among voters. Abramovitz says Social Security shows a guaranteed income can work. Do the math. What, 70 years or something? So we have 70 years of knowing what the impact of, of you giving people money so they don't starve to death. It's actually been 87 years. Given all that time, why do we need more pilots to research this idea? That's a question Stacia West gets a lot. She's the co-director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. 
Her team is overseeing the research for nearly 30 different pilot programs. Many of my friends like, and colleagues are like, we know this works, right? Why do we continue experimenting with this? Wes says that's because big policy change happens in small steps. First one city tries it. If it goes well, other cities may try similar programs. Or the entire state could follow suit. Her center will be releasing studies and data about how this all goes. But changing policy takes more than peer-reviewed papers. If the world were changed by data, we would live in a completely different world, right? And so the most effective policy change occurs when we have both strong data and strong narrative evidence. Mayors for a Guaranteed Income plans to mine these pilots for narratives about how this money hopefully changes people's lives. And they'll use those stories in the next part of their plan, campaigning to make guaranteed income federal policy. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. And I'm Aubrey Uhas. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Coming up, advocates rally in support of legalized medical cannabis in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's 2022 legislative session is now underway. Lawmakers are set to address a number of issues, among them medical marijuana. This after last year's citizen ballot initiative to legalize the drug, which was overturned by the state Supreme Court. Earlier this week, advocates for medicinal pot gathered on the steps of Mississippi State Capitol in hopes of applying extra pressure on lawmakers. Among them was an unexpected face, Kent McDaniel, who's a former Rankin County judge. He spoke with MPB's Kobe Vance. So you've had an extensive history in the judicial system here in Mississippi. Um, What are your thoughts about the legalization of medicinal cannabis and the effects that could have on the community, not just for the people who would benefit medically, but also for what that could mean for people who have been taking this medically, but, you know, not in the most legal way. <laughs> in other words, people have been buying it on the black market to treat themselves. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the reasons I support it most heavily. Uh, right now, anybody can do that. I mean, you can go. If you can't find somebody selling a little pot, then you ain't looking very hard. So you can do that on your own. And that's what many people are doing. But you make yourself a criminal, you subject yourself to all the penalties, and there's no control over the quality of what you're getting or the quantities you're getting or what you're paying for them or any of that. It, this is, it has dangers. COVID, no question, it has dangers, but they don't increase the dangers that now exist because people can do that because they can go and get it on the illicit market. So the opiates, opiates are a godsend for people who have serious pain, post-surgery pain, that sort of thing. But they're abused. People are going to abuse anything that gives you relief from pain and that sort of thing. And there's no, there's no avoiding that. So why not make it legal and safe and try to, as best you can, regulate who sells it? One of the fellows here today is uh, going to hopes to be one of the testing laboratories 
we're going to have to we're going to have to teach doctors and prescribers. We're going to have to be able to test the drugs and make sure that what the public is buying is legal and safe and 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 is what it says it is. Anyway, that's too much information I know, but those are the kind of things that we're looking at. And what do you think this could mean for the people that do rely on this, you know, medicinally, um, in terms of being able to get that care, you know, in their own backyard as opposed to having to, like, say, leave the state? It, it, it's very important, I think, to those people who have that peculiar set of symptoms that cannot be treated reasonably and easily uh, with a, a, a cocktail of drugs, but cannabis will work. There's been some... Uh, concerns from lawmakers, especially the governor, about how this could affect, you know, people getting a large amount of marijuana and then distribute. There's been concerns from the people like the governor who have said that uh, the medical marijuana industry could bleed into the black market as well. And, and some law enforcement officers have also had the same concerns. Do you think, you know, in your experience, that would be something that might happen in Mississippi? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's just the nature of people. Somebody is going to try to take advantage of this. Some several people are going to try to take advantage of this. But right now, when I was a judge, I had people come before me driving under the influence of marijuana. It's a very debilitating drug when you try to smoke it and get behind the wheel. But that problem's already there amongst those who illegally get drugs. And so there's there's not a new problem created here. The the control of what's going to be medical marijuana is going to be so tightly done that anybody who wants to get stoned is going to go find a neighborhood uh, pot seller. Trying to get through all this network to get you a hold of some pot is too much work, too much trouble. So it'll happen. There's no question it'll happen. But I'm not at all concerned about that. Judge, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.